Thank you, Shane. We pray for Isaac. Isaac. Isaac's not feeling well today, and so Shane very graciously filled in today. So thank you for that. I appreciate it so much. I want you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Though we will not stay long here, I want to lay a foundation for our message this evening. God gave the law to His people. We're going to read the first portion of that law beginning in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. We see in these first few verses what Jesus refers to when asked, what is the, the great commandment? And Jesus took the law and he compressed it into a thought. Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it, Love thy neighbor as thyself. I was meditating recently, perhaps in a moment of frustration. How can I love God more? Now, I don't mean by that, I feel like I've reached a plateau, and that's not what I mean. I feel so inadequate in my love for God. Consider all that He's done for me and all that He's prepared for me and the eternity that He's got for me all planned. How can I love Him enough to give Him my life? To see the importance of things like being faithful to church. How can I love Him enough to faithfully read and study His Word? to pray effectually. How can I love God enough to truly love others? How can I love Him enough to be bold enough to share the gospel? How can I love God enough to be a good testimony, and how can I love God enough to give generously? The Lord was gracious to me and started teaching me. Lord willing, over the next approximately eight weeks, I'll be sharing with you what God's done in my heart regarding loving God more. You see, I think it's important that we love God. I think there's going to be some folks, it takes them 
a while before they really begin to appreciate heaven. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think they're going to have a while where they're going to be on training wheels spiritually, if you will. Perhaps they will, not, they will not be with the program for a while. But gratefully, many of you, as soon as you're in heaven, it's going to be just ecstatic and just a continuation of the love that you have now for God. So how can I love God more? Well, this evening I want to, I want to begin with the first thing he taught me. I can love him more by getting rid of any idols in my life. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let's pray and ask God to meet with us this evening. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and thank you for the, the sweetness of the time we've spent together already today, this morning and this evening, singing praises to you. Lord, enjoying the sweet fellowship with believers. God, I have to confess to you that I do not love you like I should. And I want to love you more, and so, Lord, would you use this study tonight to stir us to love you more. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's lay a foundation. There is absolutely no reason that a believer should have idolatry in their lives. Now, now, I struggle with this because I don't have a, an image of, of Mary at home. You come to my home and there's not a Buddha out front. There's not idols in that nature. I don't, you don't come into my home and walk over to this little shrine that I kneel down before. That, that, that's, that doesn't exist. I don't, I don't have that. And I doubt that most of you have that, that problem. So we can say, well, we're free of idolatry. And that sounds really good until you understand what God really meant when he described idolatry. I read for you the, 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 the giving of the law. God gave to Moses his law, and he begins by saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He tells them he's a jealous God. He doesn't share well. <laughs> he doesn't share us with other gods very well. He wants all of us. In fact, he wants all of us. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, soul, mind. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, it says, Thou shalt have none other gods before me. So approximately 40 years later, when this fresh crop of Israelites are now finally ready to trust the Lord and to go into the promised land, God reminded this fresh crop of the same thing He had told their fathers 40 years before, before they all died off in the wilderness. And he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In chapter 6 and verse 14 of Deuteronomy, Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. Stay away from those gods, he said. A sad indictment is given regarding the people of Israel in Jeremiah. They've been in the promised land for many, many years now. And of course, we know how how wicked they became and how idolatry became so much a part of their lives. 
In Jeremiah 25, verse 4, And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They say, Turn ye again now every one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever, and go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And provoke ye not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and perpetual desolations. I think God was serious when he said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let's jump into the New Testament now. For in the New Testament, we understand that many of the, the, uh, this, the, much of the seed truth in the Old Testament is brought to a clarity in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, we're going to describe a group of people that Paul says these are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. What a funny statement. Whose God is their belly. I believe God was describing their appetites their cravings, their desires. In Philippians 2.21, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. They seek, desire, want, follow after those things they have an appetite for, but all the while Jesus is over here waiting for them to come to him. So he said they have made a God out of their own belly or their own appetites. Romans 6, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Why? For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works, or words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. The word belly. They serve their belly. They follow their belly. Their God is their belly. It seems that here the metaphor, the image of belly suggests their sensual pleasures, their base appetites. They have become their masters, leaving no room for God. Can we say they're addicted to their belly? <laughs> they're addicted to their desires. They're addicted to their appetites. Could we 
Could we make the jump and say the sins of gluttony, drunkenness, greed, selfishness, and pride are all examples of such idolatry? He said, you made a god out of your belly. But I don't fall down and worship this god. I, I, just, I just do what I want, that's all. Well, while you're doing what you want, God says, where am I? How much control do I have over your life when you're doing what you want? When you're following your appetites and your desires and what you want, where's your submission to me? One of the most amazing things, and there's so many, one of the most amazing things of Jesus' incarnation was him saying, not my will, but thine be done. He submitted his will to that of the Father. We make idols, gods, if you will, out of our desires. In 2 Timothy 3, 2, this is for men, he's talking about in the end times, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with lusts, led away with diverse lusts, making idols of our desires, lovers of one's own self, and lovers of sensual pleasures are what's being described in these verses. Self-serving, self-pleasing, self-promoting, Selfishly driven with the goal of satisfying themselves above all else, all others. It's been many years ago now, but something rubbed me the wrong way when Burger King came out with the commercial. They said, have it your way. Have it your way. Now, I think it helped them make millions of dollars. A catchy little phrase. But they didn't have to tell Americans to have it their way because America was already bent on having their own way. They were already trained to want it for number one. You got to get what's yours. You got to watch out for you. Making idols of our desires. I found it interesting with, it, with, this, with this kind of framework of thinking. As I looked in the scripture for some examples, I found several illustrations where idols were exposed. For instance, in Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, and a certain ruler asked him, Jesus, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Interesting what Jesus is saying. You called me good. There's only one good. Does that mean, therefore, you're calling me God, which he should have been? 
Thou knowest the commandments, he said, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not, forbear, uh, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. And he, the certain ruler, said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And Jesus, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. They that heard it said, Well, who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. But I've kept all the commandments from my youth up. You see, Jesus was not teaching this man that he had to commit a work for salvation. Jesus was showing this young man that there was an idol in his heart keeping him from salvation. He saw something that this young man valued far more than God. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. Jesus exposed idolatry in this young man's heart, his possession. So, I've kept all the commandments. Jesus said, no, you haven't. You've broken the very first one. Thou shalt have no other gods. And you've made a god out of your possessions. He also broke the ninth commandment. He lied. I see another illustration exposing an idol, and that's found in John 21, beginning of verse 3. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They saith unto him, We also go with thee. And of course, this is after the resurrection of Christ. Simon Peter, once again, is in the lead. Simon has disappointed his Lord and disappointed himself so bitterly when he denied the Lord three times. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that, they, that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. In verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh, and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter. What do you suppose Jesus is going to tell Peter now? The first recorded conversation between Jesus and Peter after Peter denied the Lord three times. Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me more than these? He, Simon Peter, saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And of course, you know, the story continues. 
After his resurrection, the disciples had made their way back to their homes in Galilee. Fishing had been Peter's livelihood before following Christ, and so to return to fishing was only a natural step for him. I think there may have been some resignation on the part of Peter after his denial, figuring he had forfeited any chance of ever serving the Lord again. I blew it. It's all over. I blew it. The one chance I had to do something good, I blew it. There's no way again I can be used. I'm just going to go back to fishing. I think that there on that shoreline, that Jesus looked over to the ship, to the fish, to the nets, to, to, the, to the way of life of fishing, and said, Peter, you love all that more than me? Do you love all that more than me? Peter, has fishing become an idol in your life? Becoming more important than even serving me? In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now we've heard this, we've heard the teaching, so it doesn't take us so by surprise, but can you imagine the disciples hearing this teaching for the first time? Whoa, what's Jesus? I'm having a hard time with that one, Jesus. Do you want me to hate my family? Well, they had something going for them that we don't, and that's the language, the culture. You see, the word hate here, in this context, suggests a comparison emotion. Comparison. Hate, love, they were comparisons. Suggesting that, that, that Jesus was saying that their love for Him should be far much greater than their love for any human relationships. To where that disparity, that disparity made it look like, in comparison, hatred. Now, of course, he wasn't telling them to hate their family, but he was telling them to love him so much more. In John 12, 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. In Romans 9, 13, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It's about comparison. The Lord is calling for a choice between one's love for God and his own desire to even please his parents. Even the love that we have for our family, which is scripturally mandated, can become an idol, becoming greater than a love for Christ. Matthew 10, 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. We live in a blessed age. Not a day goes by, but what my daughter Katie is sending Nancy, these, these, these uh, video images of our new grandson. So precious. We've seen something very interesting in our daughter Katie. 
I've told you before how much she loves her dog. Guess who's taken center stage now? Usurping the love for the dog. We used to get videos of the dog. Now we get videos every day of the baby. And Katie's made statements like, I, don't, I didn't know that I could love like this. I didn't know that I could have this much love. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It's made aware of an illustration in the scriptures that, quite frankly, is hard to comprehend. Way back in Genesis, beginning in verse 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. In verse 4, So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. When God told him to move, Abram moved. And he was seventy-five when he was told that God would bless him greatly. A few years later, by the way, when he was seventy-five, he told him, Of you I will make a great nation, Abram. Chapter 15 now, verse 3. A few years have passed. Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham, of course, became the father of faith. Amazing, amazing man of great faith. But a few years had passed since God had said, I'm going to bless you with a great nation. And I believe Eliezer, one of his servants, had a child in his home. And, and he said, okay, Lord, this must be your plan. This, this must be your plan, that you'll make somebody in my home and the Lord said, no, that's not what I said. I said, I've made of you a great nation. Ten years pass from the time that God said to Abram, we're going to make of you a great nation. In chapter 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Of course, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, who became a mighty race of Isaac's enemies. So ten years after God's promise to Abram, Sarai convinced Abram to force feed a solution. We can do this. We can force feed this, and it must be what God wants. 
25 years later. 25 years after God said to Abram, I'll make of you a great nation. He had been 75 years old. Now, if you do the math, that means Abraham is now an old man. I love our grandbaby. I love Daniel so much. But I do not want to be the sole caregiver of Daniel. I don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night. I don't want to have to do that. In chapter 21 and verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Verse 5, And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. So I, Abraham is now a hundred. Sarah is ninety. Okay, so they lived a little longer then. But still, good night. Ninety years old. And a hundred years old, they had waited 25 years after God's promise to have this child of promise. And that promise had come after they were physically too old to have children. So Isaac was beyond special to them. Can you, in your own mind, begin to appreciate how much Abraham and Sarah loved Isaac? They had waited 25 years. He was their miraculous son of promise. Chapter 22, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. He tested him. Isaac's now a young man. And he said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee to the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And somehow, somehow, Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. In multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, 
as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. God chose to test Abraham to find out if Isaac had become an idol in his own heart. I have a hard time not thinking that we ought to cut Abraham some slack here. Well, he waited so long, 25 years. Finally, he's been given a son and is a precious, precious little boy. Cut some slack, I'm thinking. God says, thou shalt have no other gods for me. No matter how much you love this son, that love cannot usurp your love for me. Elizabeth Prentice married a Presbyterian minister, George Lewis Prentice, and they moved to New York where George began teaching at the Union Theological Seminary. She loved writing. Some of her books became bestsellers. Her health, though, was frail, and she suffered chronic insomnia. And one day in 1856, following the death of two of her children, her health faltered and anxiety overwhelmed her. She had been an invalid for almost 38 years, but now the bodily suffering was beyond human endurance. In her heart were raging the storm clouds of doubt and despair. She cried out, does Jesus really care? Does he know that I even exist? I just can't take it anymore. Over and over again, like the pounding of the merciless waves of the sea, her soul was pounded to and fro. Then, through the storm, there shone God's precious promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. On and on they came as God began to paint a rainbow of hope. And soon her life was flooded with a peace that passeth understanding. And it was then that she wrote with a heart full of gratitude. More love to thee. O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. She wrote, let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. From that day on, the Lord took her, from that day until the Lord took her home at age 60, Elizabeth Prentice's life was marked with radiancy and devotion to Christ and the family of God. She once said, To love Christ more is our deepest need. The constant cry of my soul be it out in the woods, on my bed, out driving, or when I'm happy and busy, sad and not able to do anything, the whisper of more love, more love, more love keeps filling my soul.
So what's the message? Do you love God? Do you love God? In our pampered society, what have we allowed in our hearts that we have given more devotion to than our love for God? I was so touched, convicted when Brother Fielder was talking about being at the great white throne judgment. At that time, reflecting on all that God had given to us in our lifetime, all of the things that came through our hands, our possessions. And at that moment, question how much of these did I use for Christ? More love. I want to love God more. And I trust that's your heart cry as well. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, to be a disciple of yours means that nothing can come between us and you. We cannot make gods or idols out of anything other than kneeling before you. Lord, there's been far too many times where I've been driven by my desires. All the while you've been asking me to submit to you, I've been submitting to my own will. Lord, tonight, would you help us to have clarity and, and discernment? And Lord, if there are areas in our hearts that we've given over to anything other than you, would you identify those for us? Help us to confess, to forsake. And Lord, help us to love you more. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for your almighty love for us, and I pray that you'll be glorified in this working, and we commit it to you. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.